So we've got a really fascinating study in store tonight. You guys brought your Bibles, I hope. You could turn to Revelation chapter 1, um, and we're going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather here tonight with family members, Lord, who love your word, who love you. And we ask, Father, that you would just go before us, that you would guide and direct our thoughts. And as we study this text, that we would learn more about your glory, about your grandeur, about the picture that is painted of you here in this text. And so we commit this night into your hands, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you've probably heard it said, a picture is worth a thousand words. The phrase is attributed to a fellow by the name of Frederick Barnard. And he, he published this phrase in a magazine entitled Printers, Inc. in 1921. And the article was about the effectiveness of graphics in advertising. And he simply wrote, one look is worth a thousand words. And the phrase took on a life of its own. So what does it mean? Well, it means that a picture could convey an idea as quickly and as effectively as the written word, and in some cases, as profound as the written word. And tonight, I'm going to show you that this phrase does indeed apply to Jesus. So to help this set the stage, I'm going to ask you guys two questions. Number one, what does Jesus look like? And number two, what does a picture of Jesus communicate? Interesting questions. Well, let me cut to the chase on the first question. We don't know what Jesus looked like. His physical earthly appearance is unknown. We, we don't know anything about his face or his hair or his body, nothing. But here's something interesting. We assume he was an average-looking Middle Eastern man. Why do you say that? Well, we get this idea from a unique prophecy spoken by Isaiah. Listen to this. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Isaiah is speaking about the Messiah here. And if you're like me, you read that and you go, boy, the Messiah doesn't sound like he was this seven-foot model walking through, you know, places. No, he was an average-looking guy. But in the same section of Isaiah, the prophet goes on to talk about what he would look like during the crucifixion. And he infers that the Messiah's image was repulsive and beyond recognition. So prophetically, the passage seems to indicate that Jesus was an average-looking man in life, but upon his death, unrecognizable. And when we turn to the New Testament, be it the Gospels or the letters, they're not much help either. They don't give us a picture of Jesus' earthly appearance. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 4, Luke tells us that Jesus disappeared into a crowd and they couldn't find him. Seems to indicate that Jesus just blended it with everyone else. They, they didn't know what he looked like. Again, he wasn't something spectacular, physically speaking. So my point is, and to answer your question, we don't know what Jesus' earthly appearance was. But that hasn't stopped artists throughout the ages in trying to capture his image. 
I'm about to show you some of the earliest portraits of Jesus that we have. But before I do, let me say a couple of things about early Christian art. In the first hundred years of Christian art, there is no known depiction of Jesus. As a matter of fact, the early Christians used symbols to represent Christian themes. So they used vines and anchors and bread and loaves and sheep. And scholars debate why they didn't try to paint Jesus. Well, there's two major reasons given. Number one, Christianity was an outlaw faith. So they don't want to bring attention to themselves or to Jesus. Or, number two, maybe they had biblical reasons. They didn't want to portray Jesus. They didn't want to portray him because they believed he was God. But then around the second century, something began to happen. We start seeing graffiti of Jesus pop up. You're going, graffiti? Yeah, graffiti, like scratches on the wall. Like we have graffiti today. And we've discovered some of that. Sadly, a lot of it is cruel, poking fun of Jesus. One graffiti we have is Jesus with a donkey head. But what we get is in the 200s, as restrictions began to loosen concerning Christians, meaning it became more acceptable, artists began to depict him more and more. So with this said, I'm going to show you the oldest images of Jesus we have. So I turn your attention to the screens. The first one is from the 200s. It's an ossuary box, and that's a burial box, for those of you who don't know. And what you find here is you find Jesus sitting on Mary's lap and what appear to be kings bringing him gifts. And what the artist is communicating is that Jesus is special. He's notable. So not only is he depicting a biblical scene, but he's telling a theological truth that this baby is notable. Kings are bringing him gifts. So this is from the 200s. The second image shows Christ as a healer. And I know this is a little difficult to see. But what you have is a beardless young man. He's depicted in the dress and style of a young philosopher with close-cropped hair, wearing a tunic, and religious garments. But again, this artist, though portraying a biblical scene, is also communicating something, which is namely, Jesus is a healer. He's a worker of miracles. Another image from the 200s is Jesus, the good shepherd. This was found in catacombs in Italy, by the way. Again, we see Jesus. He's young. He's beardless. He's Roman-looking, which is appropriate for the age. He's holding a sheep around his neck. And he's also what scholars think may be a lamp. And this is probably a reference to John 10, 11, where Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. And again, the artist is portraying a biblical scene, but with theological overtones. He wants his viewers to know that Jesus is the good shepherd. And then something happens in the next century. Roughly in the 300s, Jesus changes all of a sudden. So this next image is also from catacombs in Rome. But all of a sudden, you notice something about Jesus. He has a beard. He's kind of grown up a little bit. And it shows him between Peter and Paul. And this painting has definite theological implications. The artist is telling the viewers 
something about Jesus. In this case, if you look below Jesus and Peter and Paul, you see martyrs. These are early Christians who lost their lives for the faith, and they're standing around a lamb. And the artist is communicating that Jesus, too, was murdered. He was martyred. But then he rose again to heaven, whereby the witnesses and martyrs and apostles all surround him. The artist is communicating that Jesus is Lord of the apostles and martyrs. He's Lord and King of all. And then the final image I'm going to show you is one of the most famous images of Jesus. And this is from the late 400s into the early 500s, most scholars think. And it's the oldest icon painting that we have. It's found at St. Catherine's Monastery on Mount Sinai. By the way, that same monastery has one of the oldest known Christian libraries as well. And in this picture, you see that Jesus is holding what? A Bible. What is the artist communicating? That he is the word of God, which is a clear reference to John 1. So what we get from the artists is that they were trying to convey something more grand, more profound than just a picture of a person. They were showing deeper meaning. He's a child that some came to worship. He's a healer, a good shepherd, caring for his sheep. He's the crucified lamb and risen savior, and he's the word of God. For the artists, a picture is worth a thousand words. So let me recap. We don't know what Jesus' appearance was here on earth. Probably an average-looking guy. And the Gospels, again, don't help us, but they paint a portrait in words, giving us no clues as to his physical appearance. And as we just saw, these early artists wanted to communicate more than just an image. They wanted to make sure we got theological truths entwined with their art. But as we come to the book of Revelation, folks, something different happens. When we turn to the last book of the Bible, we get a picture of Jesus. Now, it's not an earthly picture, but it's a glimpse of his heavenly glory. And the book written by John, the apostle, gives us this symbolic representation of Jesus. Again, he's painting a picture but he's telling us deeper truths about Christ, much like the artists we saw in the early church. And like the early Christian artists, John is painting more than just a picture. He's communicating deep meaning within the text. So tonight, the remainder of our time, we're going to dig deep into this passage, into what the Bible tells us Jesus, at least symbolically, looks like, in heavenly glory. So I invite you to turn to John 1, and we're going to begin in verse 9. But before we delve into this portrait, I need to share three thoughts on how to interpret the symbols in the book of Revelation. And by the way, this is good stuff, not just for this passage, but for general. And I've broken it down so you could remember it. You look back, you look in and you look out. So let me say it again. You look back, you look in, and you look out. So how do we interpret the symbols in? We first look back. We look to the Old Testament to find references of how that symbol or type was used in the Old Testament. 
And of course, John was very acquainted with his Bible. And John made sure there was a continuity between the Old Testament and the New. So we look back. But secondly, we look in. And what I mean by that is we must ask ourselves, how did John consistently use the symbols in the book of Revelation? So John will lay down, if you will, a framework or a pattern that we could follow in helping us interpret. And in some cases, particularly as we're going to find out tonight, John interprets the symbol for us. In this case, it's actually Jesus who gives an interpretation, but the interpretation is embedded in the text. So you look in, and then you look out. We have to ask ourselves, how would John's audience have understood the symbols? What was John saying by using these different types? Was there common historical knowledge that his readers would have understood? Basically, we're looking at the cultural historical context. Does that make sense? So we look back at what the Old Testament said. We look in the book of Revelation to how John used them consistently. And then we look out at the audience, the cultural historical context. But the bottom line is that John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, paints an amazing portrait of Jesus by looking back, looking in, and looking out. But let me say one other thing before we jump in. I'll be using the most general interpretations of the text tonight, pulled largely from the Old Testament. But I must say that many commentators throughout the 2,000 years of Christianity have given elaborate interpretations of these different symbols. I'm not here tonight to comment or to debate what other commentators say, but I'm giving you clearly what the Old Testament would have to say about them. So you guys with me? You ready for this? So let me read to give you context to start in verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. We learn a lot of things about John here, folks. We learn that he's writing to other Christians. Why? Because he's their brother. He's their companion. But he's a companion in something specific. Look what it says. In tribulation and the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. So John is recognizing that he himself is being persecuted. He's in tribulation, and he's patiently waiting for Jesus Christ to return, just like other Christians. We also learn from this text that he was on the island of Patmos, which most of us know in this room, because we're good Bible students, is a penal colony. He was in prison. John was put on Patmos for two things. It tells us for preaching the word of God, and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Why was John put in prison? He was preaching the word for the test and the testimony of Christ. He was witnessing for Jesus Christ. But this is where it gets really interesting. Verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. So here's the scene. 
John, he's in prison. He's praying on the Lord's Day, which we should know is a Sunday. The Lord's Day was the Sunday, as the Lord's Day, because that was the day he rose from the dead. He's there. He's praying in the Spirit, and all of a sudden, he hears a voice. And you can only imagine he was probably pretty shocked to be hearing this voice. And then all of a sudden, he turns around, and he wants to see what that voice looks like and where it's coming from, and this is what he sees. Now, he doesn't see this exact picture that they're going to put up here on the screen soon because this picture that you're going to see is by a famous artist by the name of Albrecht Dürer. And Albrecht Dürer did a wood carving of this in the 1400s. Well, they should be getting it up. There it is. Sorry, and, and they said that you're going to get a little things because of the way the woodcut is. But Albert Durer did a literal woodblock art piece based upon this text. And tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to take apart all of these components that John relays in this text. And to help us do so, I'm going to give you four Hopefully, easy ways to remember them. The first is position. The second is person. The third is presence. And the fourth is proclamation. Again, position, person, presence, and proclamation. So let's dig into this. Verse 12, we get the position. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. So where is the position of Jesus? He's standing in the midst of the lampstands. And luckily for us, folks, Jesus interprets what the lampstands stand for. If you were to look down below in verse 20... Jesus tells us that the lamps are interpreted as the seven churches. So the seven churches are the lampstands. But there's something also interesting to note. There's also symbolic inference. If the seven lamps are the churches, what is one of the responsibilities of the church to do? To be light in the world. Matthew 5, 14 through 16, we're called to be light. So the church is to be the light in the world, a witness for Christ, much like John was a witness for Christ and put in prison. So the lamps are the churches, and the church is called to be light unto the world. And notice, though, specifically where Jesus is. He's standing in the midst of the lampstands. What does that tell us? Jesus is with his people. He is ever present with Christians in tribulation, in turmoil, or in times of peace. Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. But we're not finished with this yet. How many lampstands are there? Seven. And you good Bible students know this. Seven is a number of what? Completion. So accordingly, Jesus yearns for his church to be what? Complete in him. 
He's in our midst, but he's completing us. He's sanctifying us. He's conforming us into his image. So from this one picture, we can derive several points. Christ was in the midst of the seven churches. He's illuminating, he's enlightening, and he's completing them in him. And just like he was with the seven churches 2,000 years ago, he is with us today. But there's something else I want you to notice. He was standing in the midst of the lampstand as a particular person. The text tells us what? The son of man. Folks, this is a clear allusion to Daniel 17, 13. And I'm about to read this text to you. And when you read it, you're just going, oh my goodness. It, it fills in this portrait so much more. Interestingly enough, there's other similar scenes described in the Old Testament. There's Ezekiel 1, 26 through 28. There's Daniel 10, 5. But let me read Daniel 7, 13. It says this. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion, glory, and the kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Daniel is referring to the Messiah. And John takes this allusion this type from Daniel 7, and he applies it to Jesus Christ. So notice in the Daniel passage that the Son of Man is given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Put another way, Daniel is saying the Messiah will have full authority over the earth. And then John applies that to Jesus. So packed within John's description is that the idea that the Messiah, which is Christ, is the fulfillment of Daniel 7. Jesus has been given all dominion, glory, and authority. Jesus has ushered in a new kingdom and will one day rule over it supremely. So that's where Jesus was standing. Let's now turn to his person. And this begins in verse 13 through 15. It says, the Son of Man clothed with garments down to his feet and girded about his chest with golden bands. So the first thing that John tells us here is his garment is down to his feet. These have possible allusions to Exodus 25, 37, Isaiah 6, 1, and Ezekiel 1, 27. In all cases, I just said, it portrays God's royalty, his majesty, and holiness. And notice that this is all-encompassing Jesus' heavenly portrait. It's essentially from his head to his feet. So what's John saying? God, Christ, is holy from head to foot. His whole person is holy. Just like Isaiah saw the Lord seated upon his throne in the train of his robe, filled the temple with glory. That's from Isaiah 6.1. I is what Isaiah saw, John is seeing a similar scene. 
So a garment is a picture of God's glory, his holiness. And John applies this to Jesus. But then notice, there's a golden band around his chest. What does gold symbolize in the Old Testament? We know this. Royalty, power, wealth. And this picture, though, has the band around Jesus' heart. Possibly a symbol of Jesus' love and compassion. So John is saying not only that Jesus is king and that he's holy, but he's a king and holy God of love and compassion. His heart beats for his church. He yearns for his church to be completed in him. But then John goes on to talk about Jesus' head. And the first thing he describes is his hair. And there we learn that it is white. And so what is white a symbol of in the Old Testament? Of purity. Jesus is the purity of God, the spotless lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And what is wool? Well, wool was a valued commodity in Jewish eyes. It was a staple for clothing and commerce. Likewise, Jesus is our substance. He's our covering. He covers us with his righteousness. And we were purchased by him. His commerce. Amazing what you could get from portraits. And then John gives us a little picture of his eyes. And with the eyes are flames of fire. And of course, as you know, fire in the Old Testament is a, a symbol of purity, of holiness, of God's presence, and even right judgment. So think of the burning bush that Moses encountered, or God leading with a pillar of fire. All of these communicate holiness, power, and presence. And John applies it to Jesus. Jesus is our purity. He is our holiness. He purifies us. He leads us. And he acts right judgment. But fire can also pierce and burn. Jesus can look into our hearts, correcting and consoling. And then John drops from his head down to his feet. And this is one of the most fascinating ones for me. John describes them here as bronze other translations say brass. So in the Old Testament, metal is a symbol of strength largely used to talk about God's deliverance of his people. A clear example of this is found in Psalm 107, verses 14 through 16. Now listen to this. This is, this is fascinating. And I'm going to read it. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness, the utter darkness, and broke away their chains. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. For he breaks down gates of bronze and cuts through iron bars. And now listen. With his bronze feet, he kicks down the iron, the darkness. I love that image. With his bronze feet, he kicks down the iron, the darkness. And notice that his feet were refined. John says his feet were refined. And this is a possible inference to the crucifixion and resurrection. Jesus has authority over the darkness because he rose from the dead. 
He's been vindicated. God has vindicated by rising him from the dead. So John's point, Jesus is strong to deliver his people. He kicks down the darkness and brings us to the light. It's what Psalm says. So now let's look at the fourth aspect, his presence. And this begins in verse 16 with allusions up to verse 15. Verse 16 says, He had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth, went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in his strength. So notice first off, it's right hand and seven stars. What's a right hand symbolic of in the Old Testament? A symbol of authority. Remember, Jesus rose to the right hand of the Father. And luckily for us, Jesus, again, gives us the interpretation of what the stars represent. Down in verse 20, the stars, according to Jesus, are interpreted as angels. So John is communicating that Jesus has power and control over the angelic world. We learn from the description above in Daniel 7 that he has authority over earthly kingdoms, but here in this verse is a picture of him over the supernatural world. John's point is Jesus is Lord of all, both natural and supernatural. But notice that out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. Key in on something very important here, folks. Notice that the sword is coming from his mouth. It's not in his what? In his hand. So it's not a sword of battle, but a sword of judgment, of chastisement. It's a symbol for chastisement. And notice that it's two-edged. Interestingly enough, the first commentary we have on the book of Revelation was written by a guy by the name of Victor Terranius. And he was Slovakian, believe it or not. First guy wrote a commentary in the 200s. And he said that this represents the two edges as law and gospel. And I think he's on to something. Why? Why a two-edged sword? Because swords can strike both ways. There can be judgment and there can be love. Or there's law and there's gospel. And it's interesting. A lot of people don't like to think of Jesus the judge. It's, it's hard for us to comprehend that because we're so used to a God of love. But judgment is part of Jesus' final mission. Concerning this section, commentator Werner Deller writes, discipline, chastisement, and judgment are very much a part of John's picture of Jesus. If they won't fit into yours, it's because yours isn't a picture of the real Jesus. Jesus is judge. The judgment of Jesus is real, and John pictures it for us with the use of this symbol. So with this verse, with this symbol, the sword is coming from Jesus' mouth. It's two-edged. It's talking about chastisement and charity, or law and love. But there's something else I want you to notice about his voice. And we jump back up to verse 15 for this. 
It says his voice as the sound of many waters. What does waters symbolize in the Old Testament? Well, it symbolizes a lot of things. Salvation, life, cleansing. And in the New Testament, it was stood for baptism, the Holy Spirit. And for Jesus himself, he likened himself to living water. So what I think John may be doing here is showing us the two sides. On one hand, one side of the sword, as we just learned, is judgment, chastisement. But then on the other hand is cleansing and purity and bringing us that water of life, this salvation. John is giving us a picture of Jesus' dual role, particularly as it relates to the end times. And then John goes on to tell us about Jesus' countenance. And this is in the second half of 16. It says, And his countenance was like the sun shining in strength. Countenance in Greek is opsis. And it simply just means his appearance or visage or his presence. And they liken it to the sun. So let me ask you, what does the sun represent in the Old Testament? Well, the first thing it represents is it marks seasons. It's a symbol of time. And as you would expect, it's also a source of light and life-giving power. But the Psalms even get more specific. They use the sun as an emblem of God's law and his presence and glory. So there's a lot of things that John could be inferring from this. So when John applies it to Jesus, he may be saying that Jesus is the first and the last season. He's our source of light, and he's the ultimate power. And in a way, we're like little earths rotating around his glory. It's, it's profound what John does here. But the bottom line is his countenance is supreme and strong. So John finishes up with the image of Jesus with that. But we're not yet quite finished with this. Because all of a sudden, Jesus starts speaking again. And this leads us to our final P, proclamation. And interestingly enough, Jesus speaks three I am's. And most of you Bible students know that the I am allusions is to Exodus 3.14. You know the story. When Moses came to the burning bush to God and says, who are you? God says, I am that I am. And that is, folks, a statement of self-sufficiency, self-existence, and self-being. God is saying, I've always been, and I will always be. Interestingly enough, the Hebrew word for I am is the word to be. And what's fascinating is Jesus takes those I am statements from the Old Testament and applies it to himself seven times in the Gospels. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the vine. But now we have three more I am statements proclaimed from Jesus. The first, he says, is I am the first and the last. First here in Greek is protos. 
It simply means foremost in time, place, and importance. So Jesus is saying, I am chief of all. I'm foremost of time in history. I'm the first in authority. And the word for last in Greek is eschatos. And it simply means the final, the end, or the uttermost. So Jesus is saying that there's nothing beyond him. He is history's consummation and completion. He is the beginning and the end, as he stated at the beginning. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Interestingly enough, in theology, we refer to God's eternality under two fancy terms. One, God is pure actuality. And two, God is a necessary being. And those are fancy terms. But essentially, necessary being just means God is responsible for all that it is. He is the self-existent one. Everything is necessary for a creator. And what's amazing is Jesus applies this to himself. So that's his first I am statement here. The second one is I am who lives. Lives simply means alive, and it's a clear reference to his resurrection. Jesus rose and is alive. Proof of his power and position as a king is that he rose from the dead. I am he who lives. And then the third and final I am statement that Jesus gives is I am alive forevermore. And forevermore here is ions. And it simply means perpetual or without end. And Jesus is saying he is without end. I am ceaseless. I'm never ending. I'm constant. Folks, this is a marvelous vision that John and later Jesus paints for us. Quite frankly, it's too grand to take in. But there you have it. It's, it's right before us. John's portrait, of course, is of the heavenly Jesus. And like the early Christian artists that we saw, John wants to communicate more than just a painting. He wants to describe the power of a person, and that person is Jesus. Here's how the New Geneva Study Bible summarizes this section. The vision shows Christ as judge and ruler, the first over all the churches, but also over the whole universe. His deity, authority, and conquest of death guarantee final victory. Christ presents the pattern in which the destiny of the whole universe is summed up. I love that. Jesus is the destiny of the whole universe. He's the summation of everything. But what's fascinating to me about this is John doesn't finish. He gives you and I, as he did the first century Christians, the rightful response to this portrait of the heavenly Jesus. True, John has painted for us a marvelous picture. He's given us these amazing characteristics of Jesus, but he paints a picture of how we're to respond to Jesus. And you notice in verse 17, after Jesus appears to John, what does John do? He falls before Jesus as if dead. This is a position of worship and of awe. And I love Jesus' response. It's a response of compassion. He puts his hand 
on John. And I suggest to you tonight that this is a position we should all take in relationship to Jesus. Tonight, maybe you're going through tough times. Maybe you're like John and you're imprisoned, but rather in a jail, it's a prison of self or of work or bad relationships. The rightful response in your situation is to fall before him. Worship him for who he is, the king of the universe, the summation of everything. Or maybe you're here tonight and you just need to be reminded of the truths that this portrait paints of the person of Jesus. So let me just bring to your memory of what we've covered. Jesus is with you and completing you. He's in your midst. Jesus has been given all dominion, glory, and authority, and he's using it to love and lead you. He's holy from head to foot. He's worthy of all honor. Jesus is our substance and our covering. Jesus is our purity, our holiness. He leads us and enacts right judgment in our lives. With his bronze feet, Jesus kicks down the iron of darkness and brings us to his light. Jesus speaks with love and justice. Jesus is the first and last season of our life. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is our source of light and power. He's the foremost in time, place, and importance. Jesus is chief of all. Jesus is alive. Jesus is without end. Jesus is that he is. I don't know about you, but when I think about the picture John gives of Jesus, it's not a picture of a thousand words, but of millions of words, of countless of words, too innumerable to even comprehend. Yes, Jesus is the word, as that artist portrayed. Yes, Jesus is the healer, shepherd. Yes, he's drawing us to himself. He's our Lord and our Savior and our King. King. Jesus is majesty incarnate. And John painted a picture for us. So tonight, I'm going to ask you to call out to him. I want to remind you that he's in our midst and he dearly loves us. Tamara's going to come up here in a moment. We're going to dim the lights. And she's going to sing one simple song. I want you guys to use this as an opportunity to reflect on some of the truths that John let us know. As I said, maybe you're that person who's imprisoned and you need to be free. Fall down before him in the quietness of your heart. Maybe you just need to be reminded of one of these truths communicated in this text. Use this as the time. And then after Tamara is finished, I'm going to come out, say a few words, I'll pray, and then we'll conclude the night. But let's hear from the Lord. Thank you. 
thankful that you were full of glory, of holiness, of righteousness, of purity. We thank you, Lord, that we get just a glimpse of that heavenly portrait through your word. We pray, Lord, that the truths that you communicated through your text would remind us of your majesty. So we Give you our lives fresh and anew this day. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this special service from Calvary Church. We'd love to know how this message impacted you. Email us at mystory@calvarynm.church. And just a reminder, you can support this ministry with a financial gift at calvarynm.church. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from Calvary Church.